Hi, good morning everyone. How are you doing this beautiful day? My name is Juan Carlos from Inspire Growth. In this segment of Growth Hacks Experiences, we have a great friend of mine, a beautiful person that I met just recently in person in Tallinn. Uh, his name is Mike Furman. Let me tell you a little bit about Mike so you understand the conversation that we're going to have today. Mike has been not only a, an advisor and a chief marketing officer for multiple companies in Europe, but he's also in the advisory board of several tech companies. Um, in one of them, let's say, for example, Bauman State, Dynamic Devices, Inspire 925, the list goes on and on. This, the, the amount of experience that Mike brings into the table for companies in terms of marketing and growth, it's unbelievable. And not only that, Mike is also an EverCoach certified business coach. Now, I would also look, like to give Mike a little bit of uh, the introduction of him telling us about himself, uh, telling us about, about the interesting t-shirt that he has as well. <laughs> and welcome you, Mike. Thank you for being here. How are you? Yeah, thanks, Juan Carlos. Thanks, thanks for having me. Um, yeah, my name is Mike. I'm a passionate marketer since over 20 years. Um, many, many things have changed in, in that time, uh, what marketing is and how marketing uh, can make a difference. And in the last 10 years, I was part of various executive boards. So um, in the last, my last two positions uh, came from being chief creative officer at a, at a medtech company, which was the pioneer in terms of neurological, neuro rehabilitation robots to actually help paralyzed people to learn to walk again, um, which was a great purpose behind. Yeah. And um, in the last five years, I spent my time as uh, chief marketing and customer officer at Generali Switzerland. So this is insurance. So the better pitch on the party was definitely uh, you work with robots and help uh, paralyzed people to walk again. Um, but in my entire career, I always um, um, was focused or driven by, by one key thing because I'm a complete um, customer addict. So I'm just um, trying to understand what customers want. Um, I listen to customer voices. And for me, it's pretty much important to actually um, have that role of a psychologist where you, where you try to understand human behavior and... While other people think that's creative, it's actually not. You just connect dots. You look at other categories, you look at other industries, and you just think, okay, hey, that works here. It could also work there. And then you can come up with something new. Something new indeed. And especially if we see the changes that have happened in this sector, marketing in general. Absolutely. And if we, if we even talk about different sectors, let's say one of the most hit uh, sectors was the, with the strongest impact in the last five years, especially after COVID, was, for example, uh, hospitality, leisure industry. How, how, was your, how, how was your perspective of what has happened to, with marketing in, in this sector and in others, for example? I mean, we have something in common. I mean, originally, I come from the tourism industry because um, before my studies, I studied tourism. And before my studies, I worked two years um, in a holiday resort as, a, as an entertainer and, and tour guide. 
And this is where I actually learned probably the most about what makes me and my job successful because um, hospitality or the whole tourism industry is that industry that that is the Formula One of customer service because there you need real-time feedback. You have people who spend um, a fortune to have two great weeks in the year and they want to have them as the best weeks in the year and you better don't mess up. So this is why customer service is so important, especially in that industry. And unfortunately, it's always the industry that is hit the most if something happens. I mean, um, when I when I started uh, with my career in marketing, it was uh, uh, it was just after 9-11. And <laughs> yeah, I wanted to go to the tourism industry and um, I thought, no, it's not a good idea. So um, you can't do that. In COVID, it was the same. These are those those areas that are not seen as probably are not seen as as relevant as other uh, industries, which I think is a big mistake because that is actually where you connect, where you where you have great moments, where you um, where you can be yourself, where you make memories that last forever. So, and most of the time, those kind of industries um are then also due to political reasons cut off uh which is a huge uh, pity for those industries because these are the ones um where you also have sometimes i mean also when i started there this was definitely a low income sector for me right so you you um i mean i worked probably 17 18 hours a day at least as an entertainer in the resort and then having tours in the morning but um uh, i think i Besides that, I had their free, uh, free bed and breakfast uh, while working there. I probably got thousand bucks a month. So, yeah. and it's not where you can where you can make a huge living out of that. So you need to have a lot of passion to actually do that. And those industries are always hit the most if something happens. Yeah, yeah, indeed, indeed. It's funny that you mentioned uh, my first job in Amsterdam was as a tour guide as well. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, Amsterdam is also a city of, of well, mainly 30% of their business was coming, was not, not anymore, mm -hmm. was coming from tourism. Uh, so I decided to go all, all in on tourism, uh, apply everything that I knew from before. Uh, before tourism, I was a mech mechanical engineer. <laughs> so it was a complete switch, <laughs> but it was fun. It was very fun and it was almost a, a little bit more of a decade of my professional life uh, in tourism tourism so talking about that for example uh, in 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 tourism indeed uh what when you see something affecting uh, in tourism you right away know that what's going on going to happen for the rest of the sectors in terms of technology construction because it's the people it's the cash is the faster cash flow how would you say that how was your experience in terms of technology adoption in this type of sectors, for example, in leisure and tourism? Um, I mean, when I worked there 20 years ago, um, um, there was not so much like it is now, right? So at that time you had, I mean, I was I was a tour guide um, at these days during the day. And I was also recording uh, the tours with a camera. And after after the tour, I was sitting there to actually edit the videos for the for the guests so that they can uh, purchase them. 
Um, and you had to do this very fast on the same day. But it was still, I mean, it was still all analog. It was not digital. So things have changed <laughs> quite a bit. Yeah, yeah. I mean, also now, I mean, you can, um, uh, you can change uh, from offering, um, I mean, now we go back if we look into technology and now also the, 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 the way how AI will influence our business. I think tourism sector is, has a huge potential there to make a major leap because you can go from that one to one million communication also in terms of preparation of your holidays after you booked something into a one-to-one -one communication. You just need to collect the different data points that you need from your customers to probably they go in, they have a personalized message on the, on the, on the screen in their room and maybe they even have already a personal itinerary what they could do based on their needs and their and and and, this, and let's say their likes. Um, so I think there's a major shift uh, what yeah. can happen at the moment with technology. Indeed, indeed. You know, I remember the first museum where I work, um, reviews for them was like, what is reviews? Why do, I, why do we need TripAdvisor? Who is TripAdvisor? <laughs> uh, later on, uh, in, the, in, the, in my career, I went through three different museums. And in the last museum, we literally were working with the directors of TripAdvisor in our business, like welcoming them, making events for them, just treating them like royalty because they were so much part of the customer journey now. So it's funny how in one decade, how suddenly from nothing, nothing to do with reviews to almost being like the Spotify of music down yeah. TripAdvisor. Yeah, it totally changed. And I mean, you just need to um, think of yourself. If you book somewhere a holiday resort, um, you check uh, the, the, the ratings. And you also check at least the the latest ratings. And if, if people say, oh, it's it's the pictures look much better because it's outdated and it needs to be refurnished, you don't book there, right? It's, yeah. it's absolutely clear. So you, you are we're living now in a time and it goes faster and faster especially with social media um, where the customer like in the tourism industry when you were a tour guide is absolutely king i mean the customer decides if your resort is a good one it's not yeah. it's not the time anymore that like 20 years ago the, the companies with the biggest budgets just say okay this is how what needs to be liked no the, the customer the customer decides yeah. Customer, customer is king. Now, let's say that we're going back to, um, no, we're going to the present time. Uh, after all these experiences that we have gone through, and, it's, and we, if we add even the experience the, that we had in the last months in terms of business coaching, value, uh, vision, understanding uh, the, the person, and not only the business, help coaching the people, and not only solving the problem. Now, could you tell me a little bit, how do you see it now about the creation of brands uh, in igniting the, the future of a brand? How do you see it now in creating value? Oh, creating value for a brand. Um, yeah. It's, it's uh, for me, quite, quite simple. Um, first of all, um, define your purpose and, and know your customer. I mean, um, 
I'm still shocked when I still see companies trying to hire external consultancy agencies or McKinsey's or who call it for millions to tell them what their purpose is. I mean, if you don't know your purpose, why do you want to have a seat on the table, right? It's 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 very simple, and and it's there is a. I read a very interesting article. Um, I don't know if it was Simon Sinek, who who said it, but it's all about um, and it's all to do with values. People don't buy buy a product because it's the nicest product or anything that they can just imagine. People buy because they share the same beliefs like you believe. So your beliefs and your values need to be number one in your communication line. And if you, and I mean, people fool themselves, let's say they want to buy a car. Um, They don't buy the car because it's now the nicest looking yes okay that these minds these might some elements who help them the decision in the decision making process but people buy a car or buy a specific car because how it will make them feel and not if it is a car because if they just would buy the car they can buy the the, the cheaper car as well because it has four wheels and it comes from a to b and um, um, but why do they buy a luxurious car? It's because how it makes them feel. And there is even still another layer on that, and that is why I always think you need to think like psychologists because at the moment when people want to buy that car, they don't even know how it makes them feel. So it's more like people will buy that car because they because of a, of a thought or of a feeling of what they think it will make them feel at a later stage. Yeah. And and therefore, um, if you if you if if that how it makes you feel is so important to you, it's important as a company to transfer your values. Because if you share the same beliefs, then you can go with that. If this is now a car that actually, let's say, is totally and wildly unfriendly and uh, and you are someone who believes in um, green energy or anything like that, you would never buy that car, even if it would be the cheapest on the planet, because you buy something because you share the beliefs of that of that brand. Yeah, yeah. Even even that can even go very wrong if they get it in the opposite way. For example, I remember a case. Uh, I believe it was Volkswagen that. We we all knew from Volkswagen. I, I mean, I remember when I was a child, my father loved Volkswagen. Uh, we we had we had only the the buggy, the the, the the Beetle, sorry, the Beetle, and and the larger, and basically it was like the the car of the people, and, mm-hmm. and people identified to that. So when, for example, I remember when when they launched the Passat, the luxury Volkswagen, a lot of people actually failed to. To, to really even to get introduced into some markets, they really had to spend a lot of marketing to to get it through it. And, and later on, they, they just took it out of the, their line. And that is what you can change with cross hacking. I mean, this is yeah. also something which changed over the last years. And I mean, yeah. um, I mean, I'm a big big fan of of Sean Ellis and and the cross hacking method. And I was in Switzerland, the first CMO of an insurance company who hired a cross hacker uh, a couple of years ago, because um, 
I, I thought it's so important in terms of uh, product development to not just do your market research and then launch a product and then see how to optimize and how to fix, but try to do this, especially if you have intangible products like insurance, which is just a service, right? You pay your freaking, oh, sorry, your friend, my French, but you pay your premium in yeah. order to that nothing happens, right? So, and that whole product that you, where people are so proud of, let's say product managers at insurance companies. I don't understand why you call them product managers because they don't even have a product. It's just a service that you offer. It's a total service company. So you give me that and therefore I help you in case something happens. So I, my service that I offer to you is a feeling of safety. Yeah, That's everything. And when you have those products that you can't, let's say, put a patent on it, or you, so you register it or something and you make it sure that nobody can steal it because it's just a service. Even then, it's more important that you develop or that you use growth hacking to develop the product and, and check it all the time during the development phases with your customer base. So if, it's, if this is something that resonates with the customer or not, or if you have some coverages in that product that nobody cares about. Because if you come from that inside-out perspective of insurance companies, quite often, let's say a product manager, he was working before, he was working at that insurance company, and now he switched to the other one. Most of the time, I mean, we are all lazy. Um, they just want to copy and paste what was good there. Yeah. And then they, and what happens is you build up products that are so blown up that they that they fulfill all the needs, but the key need that it's a good price value offer for the customer is completely lost because there are things probably covered which nobody ever would use or even call insurance for. Let's say, I mean, even in my household insurance, you need to check that for yours. There is something that if your freezer um, unfreezes somehow and the pizza that you have in there um, turns out to, yeah, it's not frozen anymore. You could you could claim that as an insurance claim. I would never do that, right? Yeah. I would throw it in the garbage and done. Yeah. But it costs money to maintain those kind of services. Yeah. Or many people came in up all of a sudden with, oh, now cybersecurity is so important for me. And then they created products that actually, if your computer breaks down, you have a consultancy there at an insurance company and they... You would never do that if my computer breaks down and it's a, it's a Mac. I could, right? So yeah. um, don't produce something or make it artificially bigger than it actually should be just in order to, to make it put some s simple element into something that could fit to 2% of the people. Nobody cares. You can do yeah. this as an option, but if it increases your value, or increases the price of the whole thing for everyone, it's useless. And that's also what we figured out. And when we did growth hacking with uh, with insurance products, I mean, it didn't cost us anything. It was probably around seven to eight k a month per product, where we tested specific coverages. And we figured out that um, on the on the positive side, let's say a coverage that we had in there, it was not even part of the sales pitch. But we figured out that customers actually would pay extra if they would have known <laughs> for that service, right? And on the on the negative side, 
we had stuff in there which nobody cared about, but which cost us maintenance of a million per year, which wow. we can immediately delete. Yeah. And I think it's so important that that when you when you use now those technologies and when you go into that, that you always start with the customer first and that you use stuff like growth or value hacking um, to really uh, nail down what does do, does your customer want. <laughs> Super. You know, uh, that, that's also something that uh, normally I used to always reflect on the years. I remember once one mentor always told me like, um, you need to consider how many shakes are you from the person that you that you follow or that you that you want that you meet uh let me tell you something uh so sean ellis sean ellis uh, you were mentioning about sean um uh, sean ellis uh, coined the, the 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 growth hacking as a term he he came up with it and he, yeah. he became like the godfather of yes. growth hacking and uh, just because of you, now I'm on two shakes from Sean Ellis. So thank you for that, <laughs> Mike. <laughs> but if, if I may ask you also, Mike, uh, how, how was your experience of implementing growth hacking with Sean Ellis on, 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 on a company? I mean, we didn't work with Sean Ellis directly, but uh, Sean Ellis gave, um, gave a speech in, in Switzerland. And I went there with uh, another colleague from my team um who was more in a kind of startup accelerator mode and they did a lot of design thinking sprints and those kind of stuff and while being there um i was quite fascinated by the way how he talked and and what the idea of growth hacking is and yeah. of course growth hacking sounds very sexy and actually uh in in the last years i gave a couple of talks about growth hacking uh, because when you when when people at the conference ask, okay, what could be topics which you could talk about, and you mention something like that, everybody wants that. It sounds yeah. up, like yeah. like like now, if you say, oh, you show how ChatGPT and Midjourney how you can save your marketing budget, everybody wants that, and you get you get uh, speeches uh, speak speaker assignments for that. Yeah, and um, so I. I worked with our startup accelerator together, and we um, um, had a we had on demand insurance uh, there, which was a small startup. And there was a growth hacker lady from Berlin, and she was um, consulting them. And I just loved the way how th she thought, and I approached her to to join uh, my team. And this was also funny because. If you come with a job title like growth hacker to an insurance company who has no idea what even growth hacking is, um, I had I had to make her make her in the beginning my personal assistant because they had no role for her. They didn't know how to evaluate that profile. Right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no idea. And so I thought, okay, yeah, it's just my assistant, and then we we defined that over, over a couple of months of what growth hacking actually is. Yeah. And we built small um, cross-departmental teams. So we had people from the product development, product uh, factory in, we had a marketing person in, we had social media person in, we had a legal person in, always with a little bit of time, not, not a full day or not a full FTE that we needed. And we locked them together in one room and they started to look at all the different things and tested they did a lot of um, uh, social media ad surveys or something to really check out 
in an unbiased way if something works or resonates with the customer. We we looked at comments on social media, we looked at likes, we, so customer engagement, engagement on feedback, what people said. We asked questions, did little surveys, and um, and this is how we checked the the, the product. And in the end. Yeah. Um, we could say, okay, those kind of things work, those kind of things don't work. And we created a lot of silly ads, which are actually ugly. So they, it was not that you put a design agency on that to create hundreds of different ads. No, we, we created, I mean, there was an ad that really worked quite well. And that was just, this was for our legal insurance. And it was just a bunch, a stock photo of a bunch of papers piling up. No. But this... I would have never guessed that that picture would work in social media. I would have, I would have always, if somebody would have asked me, said, find a new picture. But um, it created so much positive noise and uh, um, a discussion around that topic that brought us a lot of insights, right? And so and I think this is the beautiful thing that you that you can test and you do this online so that if something is not working, you take it off again. Yeah. Yeah. That, that that takes me also to the point of uh, A/B testing. How yeah. people, when 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 people talk about A/B testing, normally they get some some people actually get the first impression of A/B testing because of Facebook, what they did with the ads, this and that. But when you talk when when you apply it in growth hacking, basically A/B testing is about doing everything. A/B testing, even yes. the small title, the small button, the color of the button, even sometimes is A/B tested. Yes, we, we, we improved on our website. If we look at customer journeys, we improved every single journey with A-B testing. So we also, let's say there's always the thing um, when people buy quality seals. So, oh, this was the best insurer there and 23, this is now again a survey. I mean, it's also a business model for all those agencies who run those stupid uh, market research and then you get results like, oh, yeah, you were rated quite high. Do you want to be with our seal, with our logo? This is that super test. And you have now best, uh, let's say, best employer of the month or, or let's say um, company with the best employer conditions or anything like that. And you buy those seals and you put them on your website. But it makes such a difference when you use A-B testing and you really check where do you place that? where yeah. part of the journey or do you need to repeat it even that it sinks in uh, does it make a difference and um, where do you where do you get the email address of your lead will you get it in the beginning will you do it at the end um, will you will you need to add something in order that they give you the email address for free that you can follow up with them and and retarget the lead or anything or nurture the lead um, and you need to test that. Yeah. It's it's definitely it's it's nothing that uh, that you can say for sure this will work because it's just it depends on the audience, it depends on the on the product or the service that you have, and uh, also probably of the category field you're in. Yeah, exactly. And, and you know, it, it made me thought about what you just mentioned. Uh, you just mentioned